Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going very well. Yeah, exciting times here. We're into, you know, back to school and fall marathoning and all this type of stuff. Maybe you're into fall marathoning. I am personally hanging up my running shoes for the season. Fair enough. I I, I live vicariously through clients. I don't know that. Well, maybe I'll do some sort of long distance thing. Oh, boy. I'm building up. It's coming back. That hamstring I mentioned a few episodes back is, is in decent shape. It was just lots of walking, a couple days off, you know, easy back in. So I think we're okay. Still a little there, so I'm being careful, but uh, I think we're okay. Good, good. Uh, that That's you. Uh, me, on the other hand, a little less than okay, but still still working on it, working through. Um, we'll do a whole episode on this, or I'll do an article on it. Not totally sure what I want to do around it, but I had my last big race of the season this past weekend. Did not go so well. I uh, actually ended up dropping out at uh, kilometer 35 of 125K and just... It was it was not great, um, and actually, uh, it's it's made me think a lot about the race day, eating nutrition strategies, all that fun stuff. Which, funny enough, a lot of like the issues that got extremely exacerbated for me during this race are ones that I had touched on with today's guest, Kylie Van Horn, uh, who's back on the show. Uh, she is a dietitian. She runs Fly Nutrition fantastic instagram if anyone isn't following her already. i often just reshare stuff she posts so it's it's good stuff yeah really good infographic content all about uh running nutrition primarily but endurance athletics and nutrition basically uh and yeah we talked a lot about race day nutrition and how to eat when you are not really feeling it and i will tell you that uh Try as I might, none of those tips worked for me on race day, just proving that not every day can be a win, but that's fine. That's right. Uh, one of my clients, Sid, uh, who's done a lot, he's done a lot of you know extreme downhilling, actually, uh, but is now an, an endurance athlete and, and parent and all these other things. Uh, he saw, I posted that, you know, some days you're the hammer, some days you're the nail, and, and you, you know, he said, there's also, there's the board, he said, so sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail, but you could have been the board. And so he's saying that, you know, you, you didn't make it, but you know, it could have been much worse, I guess is the point. I guess that's a, that's taking that metaphor <laughs> to like a next level. Well, I liked I mean, it. I, I think like that's, it. I think that's the idea. There's like, there's good, there's bad. And then it could have probably been worse. And that's, you know, sometimes you got to know the line. So we look forward to those, those contents you'll produce in the future off of this experience. Yeah. Right. That's, <laughs> I honestly kept telling myself it's all content. It's all content. This is fine. Uh, but yeah, today's episode, we're talking a lot about sort of that race day, including some stage race nutrition. Cause I know there's been just such a renewed interest in stage racing this season it it's the feels best type like. of racing that's why yeah so it seems like a lot of people have been curious about just how the heck you fuel enough for day those. to day to day yeah, yeah so we talk yeah. about that we talk about just sort of longer races longer rides and runs uh but then we get into a few of the the trendier stuff uh some of that like what's the current deal with beetroot juice where are we at with with some of these other Is beetroot juice trendy i mean it's it's always kind of up and down depending on which endurance niche you're in i feel like i see yeah that new people find it uh cool yeah. well that's i was trying to make a, a pun about beats or something but 
No. Get to the just, root of the issue. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, before we go too far down that rabbit hole, before we get into this episode, let's take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors. Today, we are sponsored by Payable Apps, which is basically the coolest plugin in the Google workspace. That's right. And, and we're coming into back to school. And one of the biggest user groups is is teachers, you know, teachers, administrators, people involved in, you know, these pizza days, these dances, these homecomings, these parking spot rentals. There's there's all these different things that teachers, administrators, you know, volunteers, uh, student clubs might have to do with this back to school. And it all involves sort of collecting some information. Google Forms is a great thing that a lot of these uh, school groups are using just because of uh, Google Classroom. And then, you know, they can collect the money in the form. This sounds like something you should be able to do, but it's not. Yeah, so this is where Payable Plugins comes in. It works with Google Forms to let you actually collect money within the Google Form sphere, we'll call it. So that way, instead of having to do like a Google Form, but then take cash or have people send you money via PayPal, like logging into PayPal to send you money or e-transfer if you're in Canada, any of that stuff, that's like another step. This is just you filled out the information and boom, you're onto the payment page. And so, you know, we've used this like a lot of our sponsors, most of them, I think. We, we like to use our sponsors, right? Before we recommend them to y'all. Uh, and so Google, or sorry, the payable add-on for Google Forms is something we've used with Jersey orders. We've used for different clinics we've done, events we've done. Uh, you know, it's something that just is really, really slick. I, I've used it even just re- signing up for a, a little program here. It's just very nice. You collect the information, the payment gets put through. Uh, so if you have questions about that, feel free to reach out or check out payableapps.com. All right, now let's get into this episode with Kylie Van Horn of Fly Nutrition. Enjoy. Kylie Van Horn, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I am so excited to have you back on. It's been a minute. (laughs) I know. I'm super excited to be here. It's been, I think, a couple of years, maybe three or three and a half years. And um, the last time we chatted, I had, I was like a newer sports dietitian and had just started my business. So it's kind of fun to be back again. Yeah. And so before we get into all things nutrition, I do remember like, yeah, you were just kind of getting off the ground. So what's, uh, what's going on with the business now? What have you been up to? Yeah, no, I, uh, when I first started, I was, I wanted to work with just endurance athletes, but I had like a wide variety of uh, clients that I was working with, with medical nutrition therapy and endurance sports. Um, but then I made that shift in June, 2020 to just work with endurance athletes. Um, and since then it's been going amazing. Um, I have another, uh, sports dietitian, Emily, that's on my team. Um, and she works a lot with red S and eating disorder recovery athletes. Um, and then I'm also that has allowed for me to create some other, um, avenues of, um, helping athletes, like looking at group nutrition programs. So I'm doing a red S group nutrition program right now, which is pretty cool. And I'm going to be doing, um, regular group programs like this fall. I'm, uh, partnering with scratch labs and doing an ultra, um, fueling nutrition program with Havelina 100 as the target race. So we're going to have like a fun, pre-race, um, like hydration, like party type thing before Havelina. And then, uh, really want to dabble in, um, getting into one for ski mountaineering and Nordic skiing, as well as, um, some bike racing too. Um, so I really want to do a bunch of 
different sports because I think that um, there's a lot of dietitians in the running space, um, but some of these uh, more um, niche like endurance sports, I would say could use a little bit of uh, variety or help as well. So I'm uh, really trying to get into that. And my husband is um, really into many different endurance sports. So I've gotten into some of them as well. So it's been helpful to be able to then like relate better to my clients. Ah, so cool. And I think it's, it's so interesting thinking about the different needs of those particular niche sports, right? With biking, you have the difficulty of just getting your bottles in and out of your, your bike and, you know, reaching into your pockets to actually grab food while you're pedaling and then skiing, you now have like the temperature uh, becomes an issue and not just like in terms of how thirsty you are, how hungry you are, but also just like literally your water freezing in your pack and sort of dealing with, uh, with all of those struggles. So that's, that's such an interesting sort of landscape to be in. And the group coaching element is actually super intriguing as well, because I, I feel like a lot of people assume that, you know, maybe if they can't afford super personalized, like one-on-one sessions, they're just out of luck for nutrition coaching and just like, can't get any help. So it sounds like that's sort of helping, uh, fill that yeah. gap. Yeah. And so that's one of my goals with my, with what I've been doing over the last, I would say six months, six to 10 months is to try to expand offerings to uh, be able to include people that might not be able to invest as much in one-on-one coaching. Um, so group programs are a great way to do that. And then I'm um, created like a self-guided fueling program Um, where people can purchase that and do it on their own and build their fueling plan for their races. Um, And I'm going to just keep kind of building on that and have maybe some other self-guided programs um, as well as um, just more group offerings and in addition to the one-on-one. Um, and then I'm working on my book right now too. So (laughs) love it. Um, okay. You just mentioned sort of one of the most interesting things, which is having a fueling plan. Um, so in terms of like, as you've talked to different runners, different athletes, I I've seen this and I don't know if you've seen it. I feel like most people, the idea of a fueling plan or strategy just doesn't even necessarily occur to them. I'll say for me, it didn't occur to me until I was hitting like the hundred mile distance, at which point I was like, oh, I guess I should like have a strategy for this. Uh, Before that, I was totally just winging it, which did, you know, ended with mixed results, we'll say. Um, (laughs) Do you feel like a lot of people are kind of missing that, that element of race planning? Yeah. I mean, it kind of depends. Interestingly enough, I feel like, and I don't want to, I guess, categorize people or stereotype people, but some of my triathletes, like do actually have a plan, but it might not be working hundred percent for them. So we are more troubleshooting what they're doing. Whereas like some of the runners I work with, like have no plan. Um, and I don't know if it is sports specific, but I do tend to notice that it's just a little bit more common in certain sports to like not have one and just wing it. Um, but definitely like for ultra marathon distance and longer like triathlon cycling events. Um, that's where we start to, I think, see even more of, um, issues that kind of stem from not having one or even not having like a proper plan or backup options, because then that, um, leads to them maybe having to DNF. 
yeah. uh, in a target event. So mm-hmm, for sure. Um, and you mentioned that you started kind of focusing solely on endurance sports, uh, in June of 2020. And I'm so curious how the, like what your, your clientele was dealing with in say the summer of 2020 versus say now that races are back on, do you notice a shift in like what the goals are and what the objectives are? Um, I think, uh, people were still, they were looking ahead. I mean, a lot of the athletes that I was working with were still looking ahead with hope that like in 2021, they would be racing again. Or I had triathletes that were already signed up for races in 2021. And they were like, I want to get ready for that. And so I had people that were maybe more long-term focused and were like, I want to work on my nutrition now. So then later I don't have to worry about it. And it's dialed. Mm-hmm. Um, versus now, you know, a lot of, I get a lot of people that will come and say, you know, I've heard this race in like a month, can we figure out our fueling plan? And I'm like, you know, we can, but it probably would have been better if we did this a little bit earlier. Like I recommend, you know, trying to figure this out at least three months in advance. And that's on purpose. Um, just the process that I use. Um, I want people to be pretty methodical with the things that they're doing to try and figure out what's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Could not, could not agree more. Um, and that's actually, it's funny. That's what we sort of noticed even on the coaching end back in 2020, it was honestly kind of an awesome year for, for coaching because you actually had people that finally had this, this long runway and they didn't have a choice about it. They couldn't sneak in a weekly race or like throw nationals on the calendar or like add this hundred mile gravel race or whatever. They just didn't have an option. They had to suddenly train and, and just focus on the training. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's kind of what I was noticing too, or people doing more FKT attempts, um, Mm -hmm. including like my husband did a, um, FKT attempt in 2020 on the Nolan's 14 route. And I just know more people were doing those sorts of things, um, which was kind of cool though, because there's a shift in that perspective and, and what people were kind of training for and working towards. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. So we have a bunch of questions that have come in. Um, so I'm excited to get to them and they're, they're all kind of like a little random here. So we're going all over the place here. <laughs> the first one actually is more on the, the cycling side. Um, and it was a pretty like open-ended, we're not really sure what the issue was, but someone who said they have trouble eating and drinking during gravel races. So, you know, races that are a little bit more hectic on the bike, maybe we're not on smooth roads. It's maybe a little harder to move your hands off the bars. Maybe it's hot. Lots of, lots of things could be feeding into why there's trouble. So what are, what are some of your like first thoughts with that? Yeah. So these can be particularly hard to troubleshoot, but especially with biking position of the bike uh, and how you're seated on the bike can affect your ability to take in nutrition. Oh my Um, gosh. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) I talk about this all the time when I'm talking about my like bike comfort, like saddle talk but it never comes up during nutrition stuff. And I think it's such an important thing. Oh, it's a huge player. It's a huge player in uh, ability to take in nutrition as well as um, we see a lot more upper GI type stuff going on with cyclists because of that positioning on the bike. And we also see more um, like you tend to swallow more air, which can actually cause uh, more upper GI stuff too. Um, so kind of paying attention to like your breathing and that sort of thing. Um, I think when you're looking at, you know, what 
can I do to kind of troubleshoot this? I would suggest like maybe looking at positioning on the bike, but also making sure that you have trialed different, maybe liquid options. I mean, your liquids are really going to be the best um, thing that you can try to trial because if you are, if you're set on whole foods and um, you've got some like upper GI stuff going on, it is going to be really, really difficult to get any of that down with swallowing issues. So you've got to look at liquid options. And um, there are some companies that are making some more like gels that are uh, more watery, like the goo liquid shots are like a watery type gel. I know power, uh, power bar makes one that's a liquid, a more liquidy option. Um, even things like the untapped maple syrup uh, gels are a little bit thinner as well. So really looking at like how viscous or thick is this option that I'm using. And in, in on that note, like there are some companies, you know, a lot of people using the higher calorie options like the scratch super fuel or the Morton, um, uh, fuel as well, the 320, but sometimes those are thicker. And so you might not be able to get those down if you mm -hmm. are having swallowing issues. So it's like, I would say the thinnest, uh, thing possible that you can try to try to get down. Um, and that's, you know, one of the only real ways that I could see troubleshooting that. The other thing I can think of is, um, sometimes athletes just need a break from sweet things. Um, so utilization of just water and then in, uh, an external like, um, electrolyte option, like there's this, um, powder called base performance salts, which you could use. Um, sometimes the salt caps can be hard to get down. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, especially with swallowing issues. Um, but they have the salt stick chews, um, that you could trial, um, and if you take a little break, then you might be able to kind of regain, um, some swallowing back or like a taste for more like sweet or savory options. Um, mm -hmm. but you got to think that stuff through, I know sometimes in training, it doesn't happen, but really trialing different stuff. I remember specifically myself, I was like, um, trialing the scratch rice cakes for one of the 50 K I was training for. I was like, wow, these are going to be so great. Like, I do love them. They taste really good. But one long run I went on, it was super hot. And it just like was so dry in my mouth. I could not swallow it. I'm like, all right, can't, I'm not using this in my fueling plan. Because if this happens in the race, it's not going to work. <laughs> so yeah. thinking about that kind of stuff or like nut butter, it sounds really good, but that might be really sticky and hard to swallow at certain points, you know? It's so um, hard to swallow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When you're tired, it's yeah. Kind of the worst. <laughs> yeah. So you have got to think about like, what is going to be the easiest thing for me to get down? And that might require like quite a bit of trial and error positioning, like thinking about the thing that we were just talking about positioning of the bike, thinking about like how much, maybe how you're breathing too. Like if you tend to swallow a lot of air or something that could be affecting you. Um, so those are some of the top things that I would consider. I don't know if you have thought of anything yourself or. Yeah, no, I, I love, I love all of your thoughts. My other one, as far as positioning is, um, a lot of people don't know that bib shorts are actually way better than regular cycling shorts. Cause cycling shorts, like 
unfortunately they fit really tight, like pretty much right above your belly button most of the time. So, and then you're bent over and you have this thing that's like jammed into your gut and it is the worst for being able to eat solid food. So if you haven't switched to bib shorts, that is my (laughs) major positioning recommendation. Oh, I love it. That's great. That's a really good tip. (laughs) It's such a, like, it sounds like such a minor thing, but it just makes such a huge difference. Um, and yet now all I'm picturing when you mentioned like the switching to something savory is like basically doing like a tequila shot minus the tequila where you're like putting salt on your, like, you know, (laughs) on your hand and like licking it off and like doing like a, you know, bite of a lime or something. I'm like, that would actually have been amazing during a hot race. (laughs) That's actually, so the base performance salts, have you seen them? They are like a tube of electrolyte, uh, blend. And it is like a, it, it is like a powder that you uh, open the top and lick your thumb and then you put it over the top and lick your thumb again. So it'd be uh, perfect for that lime slice too. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Sold. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then actually the point you made about gels and the, the difference in how liquidy they are, what I've actually also noticed is that changes with temperature too, right? Like a cliff gel in the summer is suddenly much more liquidy than it is in like early spring or fall. And that can be either like really nice or really gross, uh, just totally depending on what you're expecting. And I think just being aware of that can completely like change. Cause I've been like unpleasantly surprised by that a couple of times. And oh, yeah. it really throws a hot you. Goo. A hot goo is maybe not my favorite or, um, the spring energy gels too. If those things get hot, those, oh, they're interesting. That's yeah, just my yeah. opinion. But. A little rough. Yeah. And yeah, it's funny. I actually had said like, my personal question is uh, during my last race, I was really struggling. I like wanted to eat and I'd like put something in my mouth and like, I just couldn't swallow it after that. Like I'd have it in my mouth and just be like, I can't do it. I can't physically make myself swallow. Um, and it was like the oddest sensation and I have no idea like what prompted it and it eventually went away, but did you, did you like trial, you know, just trying to get water down for a little bit to like take, give your palate a break and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that's what solved it was just that I needed to be drinking more water. And it's, it's actually really tricky. I find the bike is nice because you can have two bottles on the bike. So you can have a water and then your like electrolyte mix or whatever, or drink mix. And I just use tailwind in my pack for runs and it can definitely get a little, a little overly sweet. Um, especially in a run where there's only aid stations every like 10 miles or so. So you're going like two hours before you see an aid station to even get like just a cup of regular water. So I think what I realized is I need to keep just like a little thing of just plain water with me. Yeah. I, I actually suggest that to, uh, my athletes that I work with when we're building a fueling plan. Um, cause that's something that people don't necessarily think about either is like, Oh, actually, yeah, maybe I should have a hydration mix and a water source, um, because of kind of what you're mentioning, like the palate fatigue is a real thing. Um, and just like, at that point, your body kind of like rejects anything sweet. So that's why like mixing it up with some electrolytes, some regular water can um, really benefit people. Yeah, it was, I was dreaming of cold water. It was like such a weird feeling to be so excited to just get to an aid station and just be like, give me regular water. (laughs) I do that with sparkling water on long runs. I like think about like, uh, a bubbly water at the end. It's like motivating for me. 
The worst is when you're thinking about it at like mile two, when you know you're doing like 20 miles though. And you're like, oh no, this is probably not a good sign about today's, (laughs) today's runs not going great. You can freeze your bottles too. And actually like take those out and have them melt if it is super hot out. So, or like have one that's frozen or Mm -hmm. something. Um, That's actually a really good idea. I think from now on, I'm always just going to have like a little handheld, just like tucked down and just like have that with water and the rest of the pack can be, can be the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Huge difference. Um, Perfect. Okay. So the next question, I know the answer is it depends, but for the sake of argument, uh, does someone doing a say four to five hour marathon need to fuel with 90 grams of carbs per hour? If not, how much do they need? So I realized that's kind of a a weird question. So talk me through it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so re in reality, like number one, I would want to know, like, is like a four to five hour marathon that this person's probably still pushing themselves pretty hard. So a pretty high, maybe percentage of their VO2 max, which I would say you would want to have more carbohydrate, um, than like protein or fat ingestion. And I only bring that up because I've been getting a lot of marathon or half marathoners, like taking, um, whole foods on their runs. And, um, maybe that, that might not be the best idea. Um, so thinking about like, what intensity am I going for this event? Um, and then, um, when you look at that too, uh, the higher intensity you're going, the more blood is diverted away from your GI system. So, um, protein and fat can be harder to break down, which can increase your risk of GI distress. So that's why leaning towards more carbohydrate would be, um, preferred for, I would say for a half marathon and a marathon for sure. Um, and then when we look at amounts, um, the general recommendations are 30 up to 90 grams of carbs per hour, um, for intake, but that upper limit, um, there's been some more recent studies that have shown there are athletes that can go up to, you know, 120 grams of carbs per hour. There are some caveats to that though. So oftentimes, you know, we want to look at, um, what is the training status of this athlete? Like how long have they been a runner or an athlete? Um, typically are maybe more like elite athletes can push a little bit more in regards to that carbohydrate intake, but that's still something that is individualized and needs to be practiced. And then the other thing that needs to be considered is the makeup of those carbohydrates. So you can't just say, I'm going to take in, um, you know, like five, five different gels or something and not look at the sugar types. Um, that's what I mean by the carbohydrate, um, types that we're looking at. So we know that we can, uh, we want to maximize absorption with a mixture of glucose and fructose because there's two types of transporters in our small intestine. So we do need to kind of pay attention to like, what is the makeup of the gels or hydration mix that we're choosing to use? Um, because we don't want to maybe just do all fructose or all glucose. Um, and so, Looking at that uh, as in a consideration and um, kind of building your plan. And then if you are somebody that wants to try and push that carb amount a little bit, I wouldn't suggest, you know, you go from 30 grams of carbs per hour up to 90 grams of carbs per hour just right away. So, you know, you need your gut to be able to adapt to something like that. 
And our gut is adaptable. And that's why we want to be practicing the fueling plan ahead of time and trying to figure out what's going to work best. So you can work your way up in your runs to kind of see what you're going to feel best on because somebody might feel really good at 90 grams of carbs per hour, but someone else actually feels really great at 60. Like they don't need 90. Um, so think, so remembering again, like you were saying at the beginning, it depends. It definitely does depend on like what you feel good on and, um, what the makeup of the sugars are and like what your experience level is, et cetera. So hopefully that kind of answered that in a way that someone could understand, um, how to think about it. Yeah. And definitely kind of give some suggestions for experimenting with that. And actually that makes me think, I know for me personally, like I do a lot of my like practice fueling on my long runs, but now that I'm thinking about it, my long runs are usually like easy and long, like they're hard because they're long, but that's it. Would someone actually, especially for like a half marathon or marathon where we are going to be kind of pushing that pace, would they be better served to also be practicing their nutrition during like their harder workouts? Yes. I've had athletes, uh, definitely practice in those harder workouts, especially if they're maybe trying to push the carb amount that they're doing a little bit more, um, because there's not really, unless you're doing a hard effort in the middle of a long run, which some people do do for their workouts, then there's not going to be as much of a, a way to test that and see how the gut responds. So highly, highly recommend doing that and, um, kind of trying to time it like you would if you were in a race situation or whatever your like target per hour would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. And, you know, normally I, I tend to skip or skimp on fueling during like workouts. Cause you know, they're under 90 minutes. So like a little, you know, you don't really need much, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Oh, I'm kind of missing a great chance to actually like have my gut practice in like the worst possible feeling it's going to have. Um, cause I think that's the problem, right. Is we you know, do it during our kind of putzing long runs and we're like, Oh, of course this like rice cake felt fantastic on my long run. No, no GI distress. Uh, but when you're in like, you know, five minute intervals or whatever, suddenly that rice cake, uh, does not feel fantastic. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. Like on the other end of the spectrum, I work with athletes that think they need to be using like gels and hydration mix during every run. And I definitely don't think that you need to be doing that. Um, I think if you're doing a key high intensity session or a session over 90 minutes, so those are the two that I would practice your fueling on. You don't need to be using gels if you're doing a 40 minute run or something, 40 minute easy run. I mean, it, it's, it's hard. Like it is confusing. Sometimes they're like, you'll see different things or you think like, oh, I, I need to have this energy. And just the way some of these products are marketed too, it's, it can be confusing for people. So I kind of understand why they think they need it every run, but you don't need it every run or, or if you're doing other sports, you don't need it, uh, every ride, swim, whatever, ski, uh, mm -hmm. every if you're doing like an hour of activity. Yeah. Yeah. Now with people's like awkward schedules, we actually get this question pretty often is like one of those, if you haven't had a meal in a couple hours, do you go with like the take a couple bites of something before you head out or just like have a bar with you, like in case, or how do you, how do you think about fueling on workouts when you haven't eaten a meal within say like four hours? Yeah, I think, um, Number one, like if you are listening to hunger and fullness, like if you're hungry, you should be eating something. Um, I think 
when we look at, um, the type of workout you're doing too, maybe, uh, considering that, like if you are doing high intensity session and you haven't eaten for four hours, then are you going to be able to get as much out of that session if you're going into it, um, without much fuel? Um, yes, you have glycogen stores that you can utilize, but say you didn't fuel enough, like from in the uh, preceding day, uh, and then you're going in with maybe some depletion of glycogen stores and you're doing a hard workout. Like there are these situations that we see, uh, that would definitely warrant, um, having something. I personally just try to be fueled up. And so if it were me, I would just have something beforehand with like a simple carbohydrate option. Um, but I understand that some people like want to think about it a little bit more. Um, if you tend to get hungry on your runs too, or your rides or whatever you're doing, then pay attention to that because that might signify that, Oh, like I shouldn't really be waiting until afterwards to have something. Um, maybe I should be having something beforehand. Um, I think intensity duration, again, are good guiders for this. Um, cause if you're doing like a 30 minute, uh, workout or something that's super easy, then you might not need something until afterwards, but, um, things longer, like 75, 90 minutes and longer, like I would, I would be, um, just having something in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, perfect. And then what's, uh, where, where are you currently on the fueling post-workout? I know a couple of years ago, I don't know if we talked about this when you were on last, but the, there's been so much debate over what the like fueling window for post-workout is and what we should have and what we shouldn't have. There was a time where eating berries post-workout was like, gasp, you're doing things wrong. Um, and I admit I, uh, I eat berries after pretty much every workout. So I am definitely doing things wrong if that's still a rule, but I'm sticking to it because I really enjoy my blueberries. Anyway, <laughs> where are we at, uh, with the, the post-workout fueling? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure why you couldn't have berries after a workout. I mean, the fruit does contain simple carbohydrates. So, um, it was a big thing with antioxidants or anti, oh, no, it's anti-inflammatory. Oh, oh I Sorry. see what you're saying. Yeah. So like, like the... so high dose of antioxidant post-exercise, um, inhibiting training adaptations is probably what you're talking about. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like I think a serving of berries, I, I think more, this is referencing having a supplement that would be uh, high in antioxidant. And if you want to look at it, like tart cherry juice, a lot of people are using that for recovery. Now in that case, like it is a very concentrated source of antioxidant. And I probably wouldn't recommend using that post, um, session, unless you're in a certain part of your training cycle. Um, but a serving of berries, I don't think would be too, um, too bad in regards to recovery. Um, really, I don't know if much has really like changed into in regards to like, we're looking for that carbohydrate and then that simple carbohydrate. And then that high quality, high BCAA protein source post exercise. Um, so usually it ranges between like 15 to 20 grams of high quality BCAA protein, um, and then like 45 to 60 grams of simple carbohydrate. Um, and the biggest 
the biggest issue I see with athletes with this is that they typically will do one or the other, or they won't do enough of one or the other. So they might do like five to 10 grams of protein um, and more carbohydrate. Not that that's a bad thing, but like, we want to try to have enough. We want to give our bodies enough if we're using this thing as a recovery tool, a snack or a meal as a recovery tool, we want to have enough to promote high rates of muscle protein synthesis and glycogen replenishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the window of time, um, that is like the area where I feel like the research kind of goes back and forth. Um, but I usually say like, again, to give people some guidelines for high intensity, post high intensity sessions, or post um, uh, training sessions that are longer than an hour and a half, really try to get something in with that carb and protein in the 30 to 60 minute window afterwards, whenever you can in that window. Um, But other workouts, like don't stress if it's like, 70 minutes after you're finished, like that's when you're getting in the, uh, the thing, like I have athletes that get super stressed about it. I'm like, stress is not helping here. Like you don't need to stress about post a 60 minute easy training session. You missed like that hour window. It's not like the window closes at an hour. It's just your glycogen replenishment rates and muscle protein synthesis rates are kind of going down. Um, um, at an angle. So it's really not in those situations. We don't need to stress. (laughs) Cool your jets, everybody. Uh, Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, the, um, actual portions of it. I realized a few months ago I had just thrown, I was like, I'm curious what like a serving of, of yogurt actually looks like. Cause you know, I always just kind of scoop it out, scoop my Greek yogurt out of the thing, just put it in the bowl on top Mm -hmm. of the berries and like, just call it good. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally getting 20 grams of protein from this. And I like scooped it, put like, did it on a food scale. And I was like, oh, I'm eating half the like serving size. So I'm mm-hmm. getting like eight grams. Cool. Cool. And I thought it was a lot. Like, it was not like I was like just giving myself a tiny little scoop. It's just, it's a lot more than you realize <laughs> for the serving of it. So I feel like every once in a while checking in on what the actual serving is, uh, can be very helpful. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what I'm doing with a lot of the athletes I'm working with too, especially some of my athletes that feel like they're a little bit more dialed, but they want to optimize. Like I do a double check with them. Like I might have them take photos of what they're doing or get more precise by like measuring things or weighing things a little bit. Again, we don't want to, we don't need to become over obsessive here, but we're using that as a tool to double check yourself because I do I see on the endurance athlete side of things, maybe more of an underfueling situation than like maybe the rest of the population that might be overeating. Um, it, it's definitely a different, a different way of looking at things. And um, you got to kind of make sure you're being honest with yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I will be clear. I do not weigh it every day or anything. I figured out what the serving kind of looks like and like go with yeah. that, but it was a huge eye opener just to realize like, Oh, I had no idea what a serving actually was. Cause who knows what like half a cup yeah. of yogurt actually looks like. Right. Exactly. And that's, yeah, again. So when, when I cover, you know, what are my different macronutrient needs for different days of training with athletes, I have them 
it's not, you know, you go on a tracking app and you just enter things. And then that's like what you do. And you think that you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, it's learning what are the actual appropriate portions for the amounts that I need. And mm-hmm. so that's really, I love that you brought that up because that is a huge challenge area for people um, because they think they know, but they actually don't really know. And it's no fault of their own. It's just, they, I don't expect everyone to have memorized like how much protein is in like a half a cup of Greek yogurt or what half a cup of Greek yogurt looks like, (laughs) unless you check yourself, like you're saying. Exactly. Um, and actually, so this is a little bit kind of off, off tangent, but, uh, you mentioned with the tart cherry juice and it got me thinking because actually Peter has a three day stage race coming up. Obviously the tour de France is going on right now. The women's tour is coming up, which is very exciting. Um, fueling during a stage race or even just like a huge training block, uh, when you're doing, you know, a really big volume week and you're trying to, you know, do all these key workouts and like recover quickly. What, what, what are your tips for sort of fueling one of those really tough, like set of days? So in that case, like that would be a time where I would recommend using tart cherry juice or, you yeah. know, tart cherry <laughs> or pomegranate juice or something like that would be a really good option. Um, and I'm not saying don't use tart ter- cherry juice to be clear. I'm just saying like when you're in a maybe race phase, it would be a good time to use that as a recovery tool versus maybe when you're in a base training phase, you use it more strategically and maybe not as often. Um, But um, when you're doing those kind of stage races, really focusing on, um, you got to focus on the most nutrient dense things that you can get down for the smallest volume, I would say. So what are those things? Typically our fats are going to be some of the things like focusing on your nut butters, seed butters, um, those sorts of things, because you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck there. Um, it's hard. I would say liquid options, liquid, um, liquid calories can be really great. I know it's hard. Like you probably, you might not have access to like a blender to do a high calorie smoothie or something, but even like meal replacement shakes can be really good options. Um, you don't let the thing I do see with stage racing too, is a lack of focus on hydration and electrolyte replenishment, which can really come back to bite you later. Um, so you've got to be like, when you are done for the day, you need to start, like have a bottle with electrolyte, like right away, preferably hydration mix, because then you're getting carbohydrate too. Um, recovery mixes. This is a really good time for those too, because they're going to have protein and carbohydrate in them in a fluid source. So the more like you can maximize liquid nutrition um, to allow for that rehydration process to occur, um, the more you can get in um, the electrolytes with that too, the more you can focus on, um, you know, high nutrient dense items like your fat sources um, in a smaller volume can be really helpful but it takes a lot of, um, it does take some planning. Like I have, when I do work with stage racing athletes, I, I want them to be planning things out and what they'll have, like not when they're actually doing the event that they're doing, like during, cause they've got their fueling plan, hopefully already figured out. But then af- outside of that window too is super important. Like you might need to do more beforehand than you normally would. And, uh, in your training, you might want to 
practice, like getting in more like 700 to a thousand calories beforehand versus three to 500 calories. Um, Mm -hmm. and then maximizing afterwards too. So like, instead of one helping of dinner, you might need to kind of force yourself to have two helpings or like really trying to add things like oils, et cetera, that are going to get that calorie content up of, um, those recovery meals. Mm -hmm. And then I think another big thing is like, like what foods do you like? Like what fun foods do you really like? And you know that you'll be able to get down if you are, you know, out there, maybe don't have an appetite afterwards, et cetera. So thinking that's really important piece is you might think, oh, I'm going to eat this like healthy meal afterwards and recover. But your body is like, oh, no, like I am not that hungry. Like I just need to like, I want M&Ms or I want like, you know, a candy bar and stuff like so have some foods that you know, are your favorite foods to have um, during that time too. Um, Mm -hmm. So those like maybe comfort, quote, comfort foods that you enjoy. Yeah. It's so funny. I've, I've started to realize that the harder I work. So if I do like a hundred miler or like a long, like a, you know, long training weekend of like a bunch of like big runs or I'm so much less hungry than I am on days that I just run, you know, an hour, hour and a half. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Cause I'm like, I want to be so hungry right now. And I want to want to eat. And I just don't. Um, yeah. and I've like figured out how to like, obviously I, I know how to make myself, uh, get in the food I need, but it's definitely a really interesting conundrum because you assume that you're going to be super hungry and yeah, like that super healthy meal is going to be amazing because you're going to be starving and anything is going to be good, but it's not the case. <laughs> yeah, it's typically not like that appetite suppression during stage racing is huge. Um, and so knowing yourself and like you can recognize some of that uh, on long training days, because uh, a lot of athletes will experience that after a long ride or a long run. Um, and, you know, what, what are you kind of craving <laughs> if anything, on those days um, that you might be able to replicate or bring with you in, in your stage race. Mm-hmm. The most embarrassing thing happened to me the other weekend. I had just done a, an 80K and the next day we were driving, starting our drive home. And I was just like, Peter, we need to pull into a McDonald's right now. Like there is no other option. I need to have a quarter pounder. I have not had a McDonald's hamburger in 25 years. but that was just like the thing that I desperately needed. And I still don't understand why it happened, but you know what? It was the best thing I've ever eaten. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm glad that you did that versus saying like, this is so bad for me. Like I'm not going to have it because it's like, why, why do that? Why be so restrictive to yourself that you can't have um, some of the things that you enjoy, you know? Yeah. I I'll admit, I tried to tamp down the urge, but it just was not going away. And I was like, we need to stop. I I can't explain it. I I just, this is what's (laughs) happening right now. (laughs) That's awesome. Like, I don't know how to deal with you right now. So we're going to stop, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So it worked out. (laughs) Um, Okay. On a, on a less, uh, less comfort food note, we'll say, um, beetroot juice. Uh, you know, people are still kind of constantly asking us about this. Where, where do you stand on, on, on beetroot juice? Um, I, I mean, I don't think my stance has really changed on beetroot juice. It, it, it can be, uh, a, a potential performance enhancing tool, 
um, if used correctly. You know, when I see athletes that are using it, sometimes they're like, oh, I raced and I just decided to try beet juice beforehand. And I'm like, uh, why did you do that? Like, you didn't practice with it at all. Like, that seems odd to me that you wouldn't practice with it. And then they end up like having to run to the bathroom or something. I was just going to say, they do make a great hundred meter dash to the porta potty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it, it, it can be a GI stimulant for some people. So you've got to utilize it. You've got to utilize it ahead of time in regards to like, whether you think it's going to work for you. And then the other thing that they're seeing is that um, with some more like higher trained, high level athletes, um, the beetroot juice might not have as much of a performance enhancing effect for them. So really like utilizing again ahead of time to see if it actually like does anything for you or not would be recommended um, rather than saying, Oh, I'm just going to use it in a race. And uh, cause it's performance enhancing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is that kind of like, that I, perfect. Again, no, that's great. Um, and that actually leads to kind of the last big thing I wanted to touch on, which is this, this just, you know, supplement thing that, uh, you know, I think we touched on this three years ago and I, I feel like we are still on it where, uh, everyone is still, and I mean, I include myself in this still kind of looking for, the, the right supplements or like the one thing that's going to fix everything. Or, you know, uh, we hear this person is taking this thing or, you know, this person's using this. So therefore you should do this. Um, for me, the personal example is I get these weird leg cramps occasionally. And I ran into another cyclist who has this exact same thing happen. And she's yeah, finally, she's like, Oh, it's, you know, I've figured out I have the, like, uh, what is it, the MTHRFR gene. Mm-hmm. So therefore I don't process folate. And if you're like taking any iron, then like, that's, what's making your legs cramp. And I was like, okay, that's, that's clearly me as well. Like, you know, real, realistically, like, no, that is, that is probably not me as well. Stop, like, <laughs> stop that. Um, but it's very easy to see what someone else is doing and then just kind of assume we need to do the same thing. Um, so yeah, supplements, uh, can you just kind of give us some like smart guidelines for what we should be thinking about here as we're, uh, navigating this world. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone's maybe looking for that thing, like you were saying, the thing that's going to fix them with their problem, or they are looking for an advantage in performance, which I see a lot in the like triathlon cycling world. Um, just looking for any gains that you can get, um, with supplementation. Um, the problem is, is that number one, you've got to be careful with the companies that you're taking these supplements from, because a lot of them are not regulated very well. Um, I, I should say like pretty much all of them aren't regulated very well, but some of them do a better job of becoming like certified for sport or NSF certified so that they are trying to test more and comply more with like water regulations for drug testing that's still not 100% guarantee that they are um, clear of anything that might be on the banned substance list. So just knowing that you are taking a risk if you do take a supplement, it doesn't matter like what it is, what company it is. Um, but um, I guess uh, when you don't have even those labels, then we can see like, oh, there could be tainted, there could be things in your supplement that you don't even know you're taking. And um 
in particular, like with protein powders, like a lot of heavy metal, um, heavy metals are kind of like in some protein powders. So, you know, people just go to the store and buy a protein powder without looking at the company. And um, I am like, you know, I would not take those chances with uh, protein powders because they, a lot of them are tainted. Um, and so really, again, doing your homework on the labeling and research of companies. Um, there's a company called Lab Door that does some independent testing that's open to the public. So you can like view the results of the tests. Um, so thinking about that. And then the other point I want to make is, um, do you have validity or like reasoning behind why you're taking a supplement? So like, if you just randomly take a supplement, it could interact with other vitamins, minerals, like physiological processes in the body that then you don't really realize until a couple months down the road. And then you end up with another problem. And so we were talking about this earlier, like if you take an iron supplement without really knowing, you know, iron, zinc, copper, they compete for absorption in the body then what can happen is you can end up with an iron overload situation and maybe uh, low levels of zinc and copper, which can cause other um, issues for you. And so this is where I would advocate like getting some blood work done, working with a professional that knows the, you know, biochemistry behind how these um, things interact and also maybe keeps up with the research on the supplements themselves too. Um, because, um, you know, just like there could be a new hot stuff like ketones, exogenous ketones are one right now. And it's just like, you know, the research research is not fully there to support use of them yet. Um, but what research is out there and if, if you work with like a sports dietitian that knows the research out there, then you can chat with them on like what could be the positives and negatives to utilizing this before just like randomly taking it, you know? So I think even in the sense of like, if you're set, it, set on taking a supplement, having a chat with a sports dietitian that keeps up with the research could be a good thing because then it could, you know, just make sure that you're informed of like what the positives and negatives could be before you just take it. Love it. Love it. Uh, and if you, if you were an athlete, how often would you recommend either going to a doctor and asking for blood panels or naturopath or doing something like inside tracker? Um, so it goes back it depends. to that. It depends. Yeah. Oh, it's it's that answer. Yes. Of course. <laughs> Um, I, I kind of like for athletes to think about doing it though, like once a year, at least maybe in their off season, getting ready for a big training cycle or something. Um, but if you have known issues that, you know, from blood work, like if you have low ferritin, then you don't want to wait uh. a year to get it tested again. You want to, uh, get that tested again within three to six months. Um, so knowing like a good testing schedule for yourself based on what's going on can be um, a good thing. Um, the other thing I want to point out is I do realize, you know, sometimes full like inside tracker panels aren't financially accessible for everyone. And I want to point out that they're not necessary for everyone. Um, I think they have a really good place in the space and they can be really helpful for people. But if you have insurance and a good sports um, doctor, they can get they can get tests ordered for you that you might need. 
Um, and then there's also, I know in the US, um, uh, there's Quest Labs. Um, and so as a dietitian, actually, like I can order for my athletes some individualized Quest Labs and they have a doctor on staff that will approve the blood work. Um, and so it actually ends up being a little bit cheaper too, because we're handpicking like which things we want to look at versus like getting a really big panel that might be a little bit uh, out of reach for some people. So I just want to point that out. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And even, even if you do do say inside tracker, like once, then you could hone in and you're like, Oh, you know, yeah, my iron is a little, I should like check on that in three to six months. That doesn't mean you need a whole new set of panels done in three to six. You can just go get that one thing checked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, and don't get me wrong. Like I have a lot of athletes that I work with that get inside tracker done, or I might recommend it, especially if a lot of different things are going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but so I think, yeah, so I think it's like great, um, resource in the space, but I also think for some people, like they feel like, oh man, like I can't afford that, but then I don't have any other options. And so, um, I guess that would be my point is like, you do have other options if you really needed it, um, Mm -hmm. and working with somebody that might be able to guide you. Okay. Here are the lab tests. I think you need based on um, what you're experiencing and what we're trying to figure out that can help you hone in on what's going to be the best, um, like panels or tests for you to get. Absolutely. Oh, so good. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up your entire day, even though I could ask you questions for like the next 24 hours, but before we go, tell everyone where they can find you, where they can check out all of your programs, keep an eye on what's coming up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So my website is going to be flynutrition.org. And then, um, I'm fly nutrition three on Instagram and that's my main, um, kind of education platform. I do a lot of infographics. So if you're looking for infographics, they're so good. (laughs) So that's my main thing. I don't do a lot of, um, like Facebook or anything, um, just website and Instagram. Yeah. And everyone should definitely check out your Instagram because the infographics are so helpful. Um, yeah, just super useful. So it's one of my favorite accounts to follow for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kylie. It was great catching up with you and getting all of this uh, excellent intel. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me again. Anytime. You are always welcome. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.